Um, good morning. My name's Chris. I'm on staff here at Riverstone. If you have your Bibles, open them to Acts 2. Um, this is our second week in a series on Acts. And um, just to give you a little refresher of what we talked about last week, uh, we focused on basically how this massive thing that has become Christianity today, so today, on the face of the earth, one out of every three people claim to be a Christian. Okay, so how this gigantor religion started as a small religious minority Jewish sect persecuted on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, right? And despite the obstacles and the challenges at every turn that these jokers would face, this little tiny group who insisted that Jesus is king and he rose from the dead and he has, he has the authority over the universe, right? Despite all of the opposition at every turn this little group would incur, spreads like wildfire, right? So much so, here we are, 2,000 years later in Buford, Georgia, of all places, talking about Jesus, right? Spreads uncontrollably, and I always love the picture when we talk about the book of Acts, of the zombie apocalypse map, right? It's 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, and the dread over the president in the room and the scientist guy, and they're all like, it's over, right? It's like Christianity. Spreads like, I think that COVID is contagious. Got nothing on the gospel, okay? Love saying that. So... We left off last week with Jesus, and honestly, we have to sit with that for a second, don't we? That this thing that you are a part of is to take root and to be a sort of contagion in your life and in your friend group and in your family. Just like a horrible disease or a zombie apocalypse, it starts small, like a bite, right? And it grows and takes over. It's a bit of a silly picture, but it works, doesn't it? The kingdom of God, small as a mustard seed, and yet grows to be the tallest. There's something there that we have to sit with when we think about what we're a part of, that it is inherently contagious, and at least it should be, okay? So last week we left off with Jesus giving them, the disciples, a blueprint, right? Not the timeline. They ask him a question, doesn't really answer the question, and Jesus says, you know what? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth, but don't do anything until the Spirit comes. Wait. Okay? So that's where we left off last week. So the, the disciples are holding up together. Um, let's just put ourselves in their shoes just for a second so we can kind of get the idea, right? Their leader had been murdered by the state. Right? He rose from the dead. They're still really confused. And we talked about that last week because it said that Jesus, with many proofs, had to show them that it was him. And that comforts my little disbelieving heart. That even the disciples, seen this dude killed, seen him raised from the dead, ate breakfast with the bro, right? Hanging out with him 40 days. And it's saying during that 40 days, Jesus, with many proofs, over and over and over and over and over again, he's saying, it's me, guys. I'm really here. I'm alive. And he's having to prove it to him over and over again. And that comforts my heart, right? So here they are in the upper room, probably still a little confused, probably still a little terrified. You know, Rome came for Jesus. Maybe Rome's coming for us. We don't know. We're in a room. We're praying. He said to wait. So Peter stands up, gives a little bit of leadership uh, to to this group now. And he would Peter will emerge as the main character on the stage for the first eight chapters of Acts, okay? Mostly. 
He emerges, he says, hey guys, listen, Judas didn't work out. <laughs> need, to, need to replace him. So they cast lots. So in other words, some dice, right? Cast some lots. They pick Matthias. He replaces the disciples. The 12 are now represented again. And we pick it up um, in chapter two. Um, and we're gonna see exactly what Jesus said um, or meant when he said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if you grew up in church, if you read the Bible, if you call yourself Christian, and when you think of the word baptized with the Holy Spirit, there's probably a whole lot of stuff that comes to your mind, okay? It's literally, if you grew up in the church, impossible to approach this subject with a clean slate, Okay, we just need to get that out and, and, and acknowledge that, okay? You have an opinion when you hear the word baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we're gonna see exactly what he meant by that. But remember, if you, if you grew up in church, if you know the Bible, this is not the first time we've heard this word, this phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist prophesied this at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He spoke, saw somehow into the future what was going to happen. He says, I baptize you with water. He, Jesus, who I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, he's going to come. He's going to baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see in Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of that prophecy given to John the Baptist by the Holy Spirit when he baptized Jesus, okay? But before we get to that fulfillment, we need to make some important distinctions, okay? I'm going to read to you from Martin, Lord jo Martin Lloyd Jones, uh, Joy Unspeakable, Power and Renewal of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read some sections to you, okay? This is going to be important for us, y'all, as we sit with the New Testament church. Perhaps the greatest danger of all for Christian people is the danger of understanding scriptures in the light of their own experience. Okay. We should not interpret scripture in the light of our experience, but we should examine our experiences in the light of the teaching of the scripture. There are two main ways in which it seems to me we can go wrong in this question of the relationship of our experiences to the teaching of scripture. Turn your thinking caps on, team. The first danger is that of claiming things which either go beyond the scripture or which indeed may even be contrary to it. Now, there are many who have done this throughout the centuries and there are still people doing it today. There have been people, they were to be found in the early church who have claimed they were uniquely inspired. The apostles called them false apostles. And there were people who claimed they were receiving revelation who did not care what the teaching was. They said they were directly inspired by God. See, that opens the door to all sorts of fanaticism, right? Another way in which this is done, so there's the one error when we talk about experience, our experience, and Scripture. Okay, so going beyond Scripture. I'm Jesus. <laughs> no, you're not, son. <laughs> right? Later on, he gives an example of uh, a, a guy who rode into Bristol, he's British, right? Claiming he was Jesus on a horse and had a bunch of people following him, right? No. Okay, so there's one idea where we just take our experience and we elevate it so far above Scripture that no matter what Scripture says, my experience is real. I've experienced God. I know what he says. I don't care what Scripture says. Everyone tracking? Okay. Another way in which this is done is to put tradition or the teaching of the church above Scripture, and this he cites Roman Catholic. But there is a second danger, and it is equally important that we should bear it in mind. 
The second danger then is that of being satisfied with something very much less than what is offered in Scripture. And the danger of interpreting Scripture by our own experience and reducing its teachings to the level that we know and experience. And I would say this is the second and greater danger of the two at the present time. In other words, certain people by nature are afraid of the supernatural, of the unusual, of disorder. You can be so afraid of disorder, so concerned about discipline and decorum and control that you become guilty of what scripture calls quenching the spirit. And there's no question in my mind there has been a great deal of this in the church. Take your New Testament as it is. Look at the New Testament church and you see, you see it vibrant with spiritual life. And of course, it's always life that tends to lead to excess. There's no problem of discipline in a graveyard. There's no problem very much in a formal church, he says. The problems arise when there is life. A poor, sickly child is not difficult to handle. But when that child is well and full of life and vigor, well, then you have your problems. Problems are created by life and vigor, and the problems of the early church were such. He goes on to say this, and then I'll wrap it up with this guy. Everything must be tested by the teaching of Scripture. We must not start with what we think or what we like. Some of us would like the spectacular. Others are so dignified that dignity is the one thing that matters, and everything must be ordered and dignified and orderly, working like a clock with all the mechanisms and mechanistic characteristics of a clock. So if we start with ourselves and what we like and our experience, we will already go wrong. We have, no, we have got to start, all of us, with the New Testament and its teaching, and fortunately for us, there's plenty of it. One way that has helped me think about this idea of experience in Scripture is, is this phrase right here. I want you to remember this. There are things in Scripture that are descriptive, that is describing what happened. So-and-so went here, so-and-so went here, okay? And then there are things in Scripture that are prescriptive. In other words, they are saying this should be sought and true for everyone who calls themselves a Christian. If you are a Christian, this should be your experience. So do you see where it becomes dangerous and where we can get off when we take descriptive language and then impose that prescriptively over all Christians in all places? And when you do that, stay with me. Are we together? Are we talking today? Anybody? Okay, thank you. Mike is with me. Okay. If you do that, y'all, you end up going up to the Red Sea and saying, well, Moses held up a staff. I guess I should do that too. It's not working. Why isn't this working? Well, that's because that's describing something that happened. That is not saying if you ever come to a water river that you want to get through, just hold up a staff. If you're a Christian, it'll part. It's not Christianity. Okay, if all y'all, if all of scripture is prescriptive, well, we need a new small group leader, so go get some dice. That's what they did. Rolled some dice, showed them the dice. You know what? I need, who am I gonna marry? Get some dice. You know, should we go to this church? Get some dice. Should we? No, that's not what it means to be a Christian. So we have to learn the difference between descriptive scripture saying this happened, this happened, and prescriptive scripture saying, if you are a Christian, this should be happening. And we're gonna wrestle with this the entirety of Acts, y'all. 
Because the other thing that needs to be said about the book of Acts is the entire book of Acts is going to be saturated with the Holy Spirit. Yes and amen. However, it's also going to be saturated with signs, wonders, and miracles. So let's chat for a second. It's going to be awesome. I'm excited. Look at me. I pray for wonders and signs and miracles. I believe for miracles. Man, I pray for it. Ask for it all the time. Holy Spirit, come fill us. Give us your power, right? I do. In the same vein, we have to be careful when we wrestle with Scripture and know that there are things, y'all, that are described in Acts that if we try to duplicate them, it will get us into funny places, all right? Excuse me. Got way off my notes there. We aren't called to try to recreate the events in Scripture, but rather allow the Scripture to give guidance and affirmation to our knowing and engaging with the God of the universe. And we have a long though not simple, scriptural history of how God has engaged with his people. Now, here's a little caveat to this, okay? We are, so, so when, we, when we come to Acts and the Holy Spirit and miracles and signs and wonders, right? We're gonna have a lot of people that are like, finally, right? <laughs> finally, Holy Spirit, gosh, I've been, you know, praying for that. Like, when's this gonna happen, right? But then we're gonna have other people that are immediately uncomfortable, Right? There are going to be a lot of signs and wonders in the book of Acts. And and look, those are not the point of the book. A lot of miracles, a lot of amazing things to say, mind-blowing like much of the Bible. Those miracles are not the point. Y'all, we don't follow miracles. We follow the God of miracles. And most of the time in Scripture, y'all, miracles, the miracles that God chooses to do are not the point, but rather a signpost pointing our heart to a greater reality, like he loves you, like he's gonna take care of you, like he's got this, like he's in control, right? Like he can sustain you, that he has power to heal you, right? So here's a question for you as we're just thinking, before we get started, feeding of the 5,000, miracle, right? Crazy miracle, 5,000, more, more than that really, they're just talking about the men, probably six, seven, eight, who knows how many thousand people fed by Loaves and fishes, right? Little basket, right? Here's this kid, you know, lunchable. Feeds four, five, six thousand people, okay? Are we to take away from that miracle that if your food doesn't magically, you know, multiply in your pantry, that you must not be a real Christian? Is that the takeaway? Or is it that Christ himself is the bread of life that can sustain and will miraculously sustain your soul in the most lifeless deserts, right? And so there's these kind of multiple layers. Can he miraculously provide? Yes and amen, he does and will. And I long for that and I want that, right? But we treasure the creator over the creation, right? You might say that the essence of sin is preferring creation to the creator, And we worship and value and exalt the giver of gifts, not the gifts themselves. Okay, so long, amazingly long and complicated intro to Acts 2. All right, here we go. I'm going to skip around a good bit, okay? So I'm I'm not reading the entire chapter. I'm reading sections that I'm going to try to pull out, but it is still a chunk. So here we go. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. 
and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. At the sound, they heard the wind. And they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them, the apostles, the disciples, this 120 or so group of people, speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So like rednecks. Like Galileans are like outskirt people, like live in the sticks, okay? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors to Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with cheap wine. Sweet wine, new wine. But Peter, standing with the 11, so it's just funny, these outskirt people, and they're like, man, they're all drunk on Bud Light, nine o'clock in the morning. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But now I'm going to 16. If you're following along, I'm jumping around still. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter stands up, starts preaching the first Christian sermon. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now I'm to 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attacked to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you self know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he takes two scriptures that we didn't read the full extent of, uh, Joel 2 and Psalm 16, and points them, they're Jews, remember, all these people there. He's using Jewish scripture, and he's saying those we're talking about now, okay? Um, 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 37, now... When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus. And those who received his word were, oh, I'm sorry, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, so let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to give us insight. Lord Jesus, 
come to the scripture and ask for clarity of mind, Lord. Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would disarm our hearts right now. It just seems that our default position right now in life, in our culture, is with our fists up, defensive, ready to go for it. So Father, I just pray, Holy Spirit, no matter what we are doing or how we are thinking or what's going on in our hearts and minds, Jesus, would you begin to ease our hearts and our souls that our fists would fall and that you would um, grace us in allowing us to put our guard down for a moment, that we could sit with your scripture in a real and authentic way. Holy Spirit, come. Lord, rest on us and do the things that only you can do, Lord. In your name we pray these things, amen. First thing I wanna call your attention to in this text is the metaphorical language. You might not have noticed as I was reading somewhat fast, um, when Luke, the author of this book, which we established last week, begins to explain what was happening, he's searching for words. He doesn't say there was a wind. He said there was something like a wind. He doesn't say there was fire. He says there was something like fire. What is happening is totally alien and they don't have a grid for it with their language. There's just not words to describe. So he says, well, it was kinda like a mighty rushing wind. Sorta sounded like that. And it was kinda like fire that came out and split and divided itself and then it hovered over every person in the room. I'm gonna be honest, if that happened in this room, I'd be dive bombing you out of the way, look, ah, right? We don't have a record of that, but I would think if you love me, you would also do that, right? Fireballs hovering over my head, I hope you would tackle me to get me out of the way. These two things, Fire and when it actually, okay, side note, this is stupid, but it just reminded me of this one time that I was working in my basement and I had this electric cable hanging out of the ceiling that was, I don't know if, I didn't know if it was hot or not. And my buddy, actually Duck, was standing beside me and I was just like, and when he saw me like lift my finger to touch it, he like got down and, I, and it, was, it was dead, but he was like, bro, I was gonna tackle you off the ground. I mean, I was just gonna, you know, so uh, anyway, that's totally beside the point. Wind and fire. Let's think about this for a second. Wind and fire. Two very uncontrollable elements in nature. Now, we have lost touch with this in the insulated society that we live in, right? Wind, if you live on the coast, maybe you're a little bit more in touch with this. It's unbelievably destructive. Your house destroyed by a hurricane, by a tornado. We live in a place where we don't have to worry about those things too much. If you live out west, talk about fire, everyone gets a little uneasy because wildfires wreak havoc. Wind and fire represent to us an element of nature that is uncontrollable. They are things that though we try, you cannot tame in many aspects. You, know, you don't control the wind of the sky. Ain't no one can do that. We think we, we can harness the wind. No, dude, you're just putting a little, little fan up, turning it and getting an electric power. You're not harnessing, you're not in control of that. You're just benefiting from it, right? Wind and fire both challenge our notion of control over our lives. 
But there's much more here for a Hebrew. See, wind and fire all through the history of the Hebrew people, all through their discovery of who this Yahweh was, who I am, who I am, I don't know who this guy is, right? Through this entire process of discovery of the creator of the universe, God would use a lot of times two primary physical manifestations to show the Israelites that he was physically with them. Guess what it was? Fire and wind. Think of a time when God reveals himself in the Old Testament physically. Moses, burning bush, after Exodus, pillar of fire by night, fire over the tabernacle. This language would have immediately provoked something in the Jew's mind. A good Jewish mind back in the first century would immediately think of the presence and power of God physically with us. And what does it do? It divides out and rests over the individuals. And what does Peter quote? Joel 2, prophecy given hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And in Joel 2, what does it talk about? It says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, this is new for the Hebrews. Where did you go to experience God, first century Jews? Well, to the tabernacle, to the temple. The Holy of Holies, you couldn't go in there, you'd die. You can't go in there. Like your priest got to go in there for you. They're going to tie a little bell around his foot in case he drops dead and has sin in his life so they can drag him out, right? The, the presence of God was inaccessible in their hearts and minds. And what happens here? The presence of God, the manifestation of the presence of God divides itself out and levitates over the individuals. As if to say, no longer, Will you need to go to temples and through priests and through mediators to experience the manifestation of my nearness to you? Now, you are the temple. So theologians are gonna call this the tale of two temples. You have the temple of the tabernacle that's behind a curtain that only the priest can get in. If you want any touch of that, man, you gotta sacrifice. You gotta go through this guy, mediate. He's gonna forgive your sins and he can get in there in the presence. And now the presence of God out over individual people, right? This new move of God would now in this age express itself through and in his people, not priests or rituals or temples or mediators, right? Now his people, are the new temple, right? And everyone, y'all, we struggle to comprehend the radical and scandalous nature of Peter, um, yes, Peter speaking up and saying, now it is through everyone. Doesn't matter your gender, doesn't matter your ethnic place, it doesn't matter your class in society. Who could get into the presence of God? Man, only the priest. Study for years, right? Years and years and years to be able to get in there. And now, no matter your gender, no matter your class in society, God is saying, everyone is gonna have my presence. And it's radical, y'all. Even slaves, he says, even slaves are gonna have now the manifestation of the presence of God. And Peter is pulling to their minds this Old Testament prophet and telling us this is what's happening now. It's what we're seeing, right? What's happening here as something like fire resides over every person is the claim that now it's in the followers of Jesus that heaven and earth meet. No longer just churches and temples. 
if you have given your allegiance to Jesus, his spirit is to dwell inside you. Later, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, in his sermon before he's stoned to death, would say this, the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. No doubt in his mind was what had just happened. He's actually hearkening to 1 Kings where it says this, will God dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven can't contain you. How much less the house we've built for you. <laughs> All of this beautiful theology and history is ruminating through their minds as they're wrestling with what is happening now. Now the presence of God that was restrained and contained to a temple has broken free in the earth. And no matter your religious accolade, now it's given freely. Tim Mackey calls it the tale of two temples, right? Us, you and me, if you claim to follow Jesus, are now the vehicle for the presence of God in the earth, not this little pithy one hour on a Sunday morning. Have mercy that we've relegated the power and authority of our Christian life to one hour on a Sunday morning. How much are we missing out on when we think we have to come to one hour on a Sunday morning to experience the power and presence of God? You're missing out on the lion's share of what it means to be a Christian. Here at the beginning of the entire thing, he's saying something to us that my presence is to dwell in you, with you, without some pastor up here ranting about stuff he doesn't know about, right? Thank you. I knew someone would say amen to that. I knew it. Thank you. You don't know what you're talking about. Miraculous signs and wonders, wind and fire. He's saying something to us, guys. I want you. That's what God's saying. I want you. I want intimacy with you. I want my spirit to dwell in you. And where does it happen? Not in a temple, in a house where we actually live. Doesn't happen in church. Happens in a house, in an upper room. At the outset of Christianity, at the foundations, the one event which is referred to as the birth of the church represents in some ways at least a rebellion against the religious structures of the day which seem to breed settling for God from a safe distance. The birth of the church. It's like setting the course for the whole thing. And at its root is a rebellion against settling for God at a safe distance. God is saying, man, the obstacles have been removed. No more religious mediators. No more sacrifices. I dwell in you. It's a call for us today to quit settling for God from a safe distance. It's a call for us today to quit riding on the coattails of other people's faith and open our hearts up to the idea that maybe God wants to engage us personally where we actually live. Isn't it amazing? That the idea, God, of taking his presence from the temple and placing it on people is foundational to the Christian church. And yet today, attending church service <laughs> is the one thing people point to as qualifying their faith, right? It's the one place that you check the list off and then move on. No living personal intimacy with Jesus no reliance on his presence, no empowering for daily living. But yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to church. Just check the box, listen online or whatever, and get back to real life. 
Y'all, the fire spread out and it levitated over every person's head. Is it miraculous? Absolutely. Would I be comfortable? No, I'd be very nervous. Is it saying something to us? Yes, it is. It's trying to communicate something to us, right? Now, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, these 120 some odd people, the apostles included, once terrified, Peter denied the Lord, bitterly heartbroken over his betrayal of Jesus, right? Now, baptized with the Holy Spirit, stand up and begin to speak in tongues of different languages. Now we have to wrestle with this, to sit with this, because if you grew up in church, you have a grid for this, okay? And it's surprising that for many of us, the grid we think of is actually not the grid that's being described here. So when you think of tongues, if you grew up in a charismatic Pentecostal church, you think of most likely what's described in 1 Corinthians 14, which is this kind of prayer language between you and God, right? So you speak in tongues and you kind of do it to yourself, or maybe you do it publicly, you speak in tongues, and then someone stands up and interprets publicly. He said, that's not what's happening here. The text is very clear. They're not speaking in a prayer language. They're speaking in different languages, like languages, tongue, the old That word tongue there, that's what they talk about, speaking, if you speak another tongue, we don't really have that today, do we? When we talk about speaking, do we think of that? When I say, if I speak to you, I can speak in another tongue. You're like, what? No. But what they're talking about is languages, and the text is very clear. Now, why is this significant? Well, it's Pentecost. Pentecost doesn't have the associations that we have with it today. Pentecost was an agricultural festival happening, and the diaspora... Okay, here we go. Put your academic hat on for a second. The diaspora is the Jewish people spread. It's this theological word for it, diaspora. Okay? During the exiles and all of the history of the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, they were spread all over the Roman Empire, all over as we, the whole list that was given. Right? So these people that were spread out for generations and generations, right? four or five generations living in Persia, and yet they're still Hebrew Jewish people. And so they would come back to Israel for three primary festivals. And this is one of those three, Pentecost. And they would come back for this agricultural festival. And so that is why the, 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 the population of Jerusalem quadruple, sextuple, okay, when Pentecost was happening because the diaspora, the spread Jews, exiled all over the uh, known world, honestly, would come back to Jerusalem for this festival. And what had happened is if you're four or five generations in Egypt, as a Jew, they would maintain that Jewish identity, still do festivals, still have religious um, uh, pilgrimages to, to Jerusalem, and yet their native tongue was no longer Hebrew, it was now Egyptian, or it was now whatever it was, wherever they were living. And so now they come back, four or five generations, spread out from now, they have different native languages, and they come back together uh, for this agriculture. But he's, cl- he's clear to point out, Lucas, that these are still Jewish people. They're either Jewish people or they are proselytes, converts to Judaism, okay? So here, stay with me. I know it's a little heady. We have a multicultural experience. It is not yet multi-ethnic, okay? So we have different cultures living all over, coming into Jerusalem, but the, there's not different races or like at this point, at least no Gentiles up in this crew, Okay? Just Jewish people. All right, so um, they're speaking all these different languages. 
their home languages, which I, I just love. It just, it just merits just mentioning for a second that when God speaks to us, he speaks to us in our mother tongue. He speaks to us in a language that we can understand that feels like home to us. I love that. Okay. But what are they talking about? They're talking about the mighty works of God. So the crowds say, hey, it ain't even 9 a.m. And these backwood Galileans are drunk on cheap wine, right? So Peter stands up, once ashamed, broken, now emboldened, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So here we have this little moment of descriptive and prescriptive melting together. What happened? Well, Peter betrayed Jesus. He denied him. He was broken. He wept bitterly, right? All that stuff restored. And now, baptizing the Holy Spirit, he stands up bold and confident. So that's describing what happened. And yet we can take some prescription from this. What does the Holy Spirit do? Makes you confident like a lion. Takes where you were afraid and ashamed and condemning your own heart and your own mind and makes you alive and confident and bold. So stands up, gives the first Christian sermon. And what he points out, like I said earlier, is all these Old Testament texts, because who is he speaking to? Jews. Speaking to Jews. And so he speaks to them from Joel 2, about God pouring out his spirit over everyone, right? Now, let's make some observations. Let's take a step back, all right? Make some observations about this entire thing. In this new movement of the Spirit of God being poured out by the death and resurrection of Jesus, God longs now to dwell in his people by gifting them with the forgiveness of sins and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. His Spirit therefore comes to empower them, transforming them to do what? Bear witness to Jesus to the ends of the earth, right? And that will look drastically different in whatever context you find yourself as the Spirit leads, right? However, it does take someone noticing that outsiders are confused and stands up the right man at the right time in the right place and gives the first Christian sermon basically explaining what God is doing, okay? And the result, 3,000 people come to faith. The interesting thing, like we're noting, is that these 3,000 Jews would then go back all over to where they live having a radical encounter with Jesus, and a radical encounter with the Holy Spirit with the name of Jesus on their lips. So uh, people often make the mistake, let's chat, right, of saying that the takeaway from Acts 2, from Pentecost, the only, the only, let's talk about takeaways. Like, what do we get from this, okay? Well, some people would argue that the takeaway from this is that the only proof of the Holy Spirit being present is speaking in tongues. Have you heard that? You grew up in, you grew up in church? Did you hear that at all? Anyone? But that isn't, the takeaway, y'all, uh, and other scriptures actually is going to make clear uh, that tongues is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and that not all believers are given it. Have you ever heard this? 1 Corinthians 12.30 says this, do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And the implied answer, of course, is no. So I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a scenario where you are being pressured to do something as proof that you're a Christian. And if, and if we can just stand back and take the whole counsel of Scripture, what we're going to see is that, that that's not how it works. Tongues is a manifestation of the presence of God, absolutely, but it is not the manifestation of the presence of God. There are many. In fact, I would argue 
from this that maybe the more relevant takeaway as we look at the book of Acts as a whole is that every time the Spirit is poured out, almost every time the Spirit's poured out, guess what happens? Salvation. (laughs) People on the outside are brought in. If you're looking for some sort of indicator, how can we know? Well, I would, I would lean <laughs> towards that one a lot more than I'd lean towards speaking in tongues or one of, specifically, one of the gifts of the Spirit, okay? Um, the Holy Spirit comes to make much of Jesus, to open our eyes to his glory and open the eyes of others to that same glory by transforming human character, gathering Jesus communities through signs and wonders, and salvation pours out over and over. And the last little note I want to say about this specific text is this, before we kind of wrap it up. Um, Often, when you look at Pentecost, the Tower of Babel is brought up. Um, A lot of theologians and Christians like to bring this up, because this is why. It seems that at Pentecost, um, it is a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Now, if you grew up in church like I did, you remember the felt board, you remember the Tower of Babel, is they all spoke the same language and they said, we're gonna make a name for ourselves and build a massive tower. And they called it the Tower of Babel because what happened, God says, let us go down and confuse their language. And, and this is the confusion of language that happens at the Tower of Babel. So if anything, in the Tower of Babel, it represents an act of human arrogance and self-exaltation, right? And a display of human strength and glory. And in that, the confusion of languages ensues, right? Now, in Pentecost, here, in weakness and humility, God comes to man, not man working his way to God, and the reunification of language happens, all of them exalting and praising the name of God. So it begs this one question for me, like, will I continue in my own strength and arrogance, or will I become weak and allow the strength of God to empower me to do things I could never do on my own, and maybe have clarity come in and rush into the threshold after that, all right? So, so you probably fall in one or two places when, or somewhere in between, all right? So we have, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we have, we have this side, it's like, yeah, it's about time, you know? I was wondering when we, you know, we're a vineyard, you know? Or you're on this side and you have some hesitations and some reservations about kind of heavy experimental Christianity. You're like, ah, oh, it's kind of frothy, you know, it's lacking, we're lacking substance and theology and we're people of the book, yes and amen. Yes and amen, we're people of the book. But you know what Jesus said about the book? He said, you guys study the book because you think life's in that, but you don't understand that that book's testifying about me. So we gotta gotta kind of wrestle with this for a second. And depending on where we're at, let the Lord meet us where we're coming. In fact, we'll see over and over again, followers of Jesus, people who have been baptized, disciples, even preachers of Jesus in the book of Acts, still not being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Is anyone uncomfortable yet? (laughs) I'm going to be honest. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is is very controversial in the modern church, isn't it? And many preachers will not talk about it because it makes us uncomfortable. But guess what? We're going to be people of the book. We're going to sit with what it says. And in this particular instance, when, as we go through the, the, chap, the book of Acts, if you're going to hang with me, what you're going to see is faith in Jesus is not always the same thing as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to drop that and walk away because we don't have time to deal with it right now. So I'm going to be honest with you, okay? 
Let me tell you something about, about me. My heart tends towards selfishness. <laughs> yeah, newsflash, right? My heart does not by default take a position of sacrifice and service to my wife. It does not take a position of sacrifice and service to my kids or sacrifice and service to my friends. My heart tends towards who's going to take care of me? My little wicked, selfish, foolish, lustful heart tend towards that. Now, I got the mic, so welcome to church, right? <laughs> if I am not constantly begging the Lord for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to insert, to influence me in ways that I cannot influence myself. I'm lost. So Chris, you're talking like second baptism. No, I'm talking like third and fourth and fifth and sixth and 12th and 20th and 60th. Like I need the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to lead in any way that reflects the image of Jesus at all in my house. I'm not talking about the stage. I'm talking about my household. Like my selfish little heart always is gonna put me first. It's gonna put my desires first. And only when in weakness I come before the Lord and say, Holy Spirit, help me, will I ever stand a chance at imaging the person of Jesus to those around me, first starting in my own house. The, the re, you know when I need the Holy Spirit? It's not right now, okay? I mean, sure, yes, I definitely need him right now. But you know what the real time I really need is when I go home, right? When my six-year-old, my two-year-old, my two-month-old are trying to kill us. Oh, they're trying to kill us. Guys, they're trying to kill us. Help. This is my cry for help. Right? They're, they're, they're trying to kill us. Like, that's when I need the power and presence. You, you know, you just... Amen. Oh, you never have kids. You're like, what are y'all talking about? Kids are super easy. That's what I need. The power and presence of the Holy Spirit in my life, man. Oh, mercy, I don't have what it takes to love my wife. Maybe you do, I don't know. I don't have what it takes to love and serve my children. So it just continually, I'm on my knees before the Lord asking, Holy Spirit, you gotta help me. You gotta give me strength to do the things that I can't do in my own strength. See, so Often, our Christian experiences is us trudging up a hill, a mountain, with all of our responsibilities on our backs, and we want to die because we know we can't do it, but everyone else, we got to image this fact that we can do it. We're all hanging, and I'm fine, and you're fine, and everyone's fine, but what we find is that in our weakness, it's when the Holy Spirit can come and infuse us and give us strength and power to do the things we can't do in our own strength, but the problem is we have to admit that there's weakness, and we have we are so guarded in our culture right now. It's just absolutely bizarre for anyone to admit weakness right now, isn't it? And yet the call of the Holy Spirit, I would argue, the call of this chapter that we're looking at is to admit weakness. It's to say that I need the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to empower me for the mission of God in the earth today. Knowing that my heart will only win when I learn to delight more in Jesus, when I learn to rejoice more in his presence and power in my life. I want you to be pricked today a little bit. I want you to have this nagging feeling that you may be settling for less than what God has for you. I want it to keep you up at night. I want the rest of your week 
to be plagued with the idea of what if I am missing out? If you feel alienated from the presence and power of God, if during this whole time you're thinking this is just otherworldly and not something that I'm interested in, and, and, I, I, and by the way, I'm super messed up, so God's not going to use me anyway. And I don't have the strength and power to do that kind of stuff. If you feel barred outside of the presence of God, I think God would say to you today, all you need to do is ask. Let's stand and pray.